This is Colonia Cast, episode 33. Today we are joined by Dr. Natalia Gallego Garcia, uh, who's currently a postdoctoral researcher in Dr. Brad Schaefer's lab at UCLA. Uh, Dr. Gallego Garcia has done works predominantly in the area of conservation genetics uh, with turtles and tortoises and is a collaborator with WCS in South America. Uh, we're really excited to talk to her today. You'll also notice that uh, Jack and, and Jason, some of the other guys that are usually on here, are absent today. Uh, they are, I'm starting this one off solo, but they're currently doing turtle work as we speak, so they're excused. Uh, but thank you for joining <laughs> us today, uh, Dr. Gallego Garcia. Um, and, uh, we're happy to have you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. So I'm going to, um, just, we kind of like to start off with one question, uh, and just to see kind of how the responses vary is interesting, but what, what first got you interested in turtles and tortoises? Uh, where did this path sort of start off? Um, I think I'm kind of a weird person in terms of how I started working with turtles. Like oftentimes people will tell you that they, I don't know, that they live by a pond and they saw them and that they have a farm or that their parents used to take them to the field and then they just um, fell in love with these creatures. But with me, it's like the complete opposite. Like I grew up in a big city. I've never I mean, I wasn't in contact with with nature or with animals or anything like that. Um, I didn't know anything about um, wildlife in general. Um, and I was actually kind of like a normal big city person, you know, kind of afraid of wildlife and all that stuff because it, I was never like in contact. And, um, and I think it was kind of my interest in research and kind of of getting rid of that fear that I had, what pushed me to um, study biology. And in Colombia, when you are an undergrad, you have to present, we actually call it a thesis. Um, and it's like a big project. It's, 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 I mean, from my perspective, it's kind of a master's, uh, master's thesis that you have to present in order to graduate. And I was kind of looking for projects um, and funds, of course, um, uh, on whatever I, uh, I could potentially find. It was kind of more a fund-related thing. Um, and randomly, I got an opportunity to work um, with turtles in northern Colombia. And I thought, like, oh, okay, cool. I mean, like, I know nothing about them, but... I mean, it's funded and it looks like fun. So let's check out and see what uh, comes out from this. Um, so I got a list of three, I think it was three species that um, from Northern Colombia. And I started doing like a literature research because as I said, I, I didn't know anything about them. And what I found was that I, that there was no information whatsoever uh, about this species, so that's 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 like the first first thing that I found like uh, interesting. You know, it's like oh okay, there's nothing. So whatever comes out from these um, is going to be important for the species. The second thing that I found out was that they were um, extremely endangered, and the third one, which was kind of the 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 
thing that kind of uh, gave me the so I had I had to choose be, between these three species, and I chose one of the endemics. So I was like, it's endemic, it's endangered, and no one knows anything about this species. And then I, that's when I chose to work with the um, uh, Magdalena river turtle, um, and that's. That's when I started, but as I said, it was kind of a random thing that pushed me to get in, in contact with these um, animals and to learn more about them. So I traveled to Northern Colombia. I first contacted my first mentor, which um, um, Professor Olga Castaño, which is like the, um, Back then, one of the very few people uh, that worked with turtles and tortoises in Colombia. Um, and I told her that I was traveling to Northern Colombia, that I had this opportunity to work with this species. Um, and she was, at the beginning, kind of reluctant to help me out. Um, but at the end, she got engaged in this project. And actually, she got so engaged <laughs> in the project that she uh, went to the field with me and we spent a lot of time uh, working there. So when I when I started working there, I moved to Northern Colombia um, and I just fell in love with, this, with the creatures and with the communities along the river, the Sinu River. Um, and I kind of, that's how I, I started to, um, to also go into the line of conservation when I see all these pictures, but just to kind of answer your question, it, it was absolutely random. I mean, it, like life just pushed me into that direction, but, but, but before that, that was not part of my life plans. That's really interesting that, that that sort of happened. Definitely seems to be the case with a lot of people is just pursuing something in the realm of, I assume you were pursuing something related to ecology or uh, biology for for school exactly. okay, yeah but then when you get to learn more about the species and you realize like oh this is a really this species is in a really difficult situation you know like we have to do something but we can't do anything because we don't have any information so how do we start with this problem and and that's kind of how it all begins you know so okay, let's find out these. And that leads to a management decision. And then that management decision opens a big fan of other questions, you know? So, okay, then let's find these and then let's, let's find out that. And, um, and then you are um, dragged into the conservation and, and ecological uh, research when you face a situation like that one. So the the work you mentioned the the Magdalena River turtles, and you've done some work with those, particularly one of the uh, I think it was a 2016 paper you wrote, um, looking at the sort of differences in the temperature thresholds for the TSD in those species. Um, was that the first project you'd done with those? Is that the one where you went to that, or what were you working on prior to that? No, no, the first projects that I worked on were more finding out <clears throat> life history information on that species. So as I told you, nothing was known back then. So the first one that I did was kind of um, 
first of all, like um, exploring the distribution range um, within the Sinu River. I don't know how familiar you are with that species, but it, it, it has a complicated situation in Colombia. So as I mentioned, it's endemic and it only occurs in those two rivers, the Magdalena River and the Sinu River. So it's kind of, of odd for me to, ref, to, to refer to that species as the Magdalena River turtle, but I'm actually working in the Sinu River. <laughs> so it's kind of, of, of confusing. So specifically in the Sinu River, um, there, there's a dam that was built um, around 1995, I think it began operations like in 90, 1995 or 99, something like that. And it was built in the head of the river. And since it was built, the whole flow of the river um, has been regulated. And the, the uh, water level depends, of course, in the amount of, of, of water that the dam releases. Um, and before the construction of the dam, the water level was low during the um, dry season and was high during the rainy season. And during the dry season, all these sand beaches were exposed and the turtles um, used to go to those beaches to lay their eggs. But when the hydroelectric dam began uh, operations, that dynamic uh, went crazy. And during the dry season, Oftentimes they were releasing a lot of water <clears throat> and they used to flood all the um, nesting beaches. Um, so there, and that river specifically is not connected to any other rivers. So it's, it's kind of an isolated uh, drainage. So you have, it's kind of a swimming pool where you have like a wall in one end and then the Caribbean Sea at the other end. and no connections in between. So the population is completely trapped in that river. So that, that, that means that the population dynamics and population growth depends completely on the amount of, on, on recruitment of, of, of the amount of new individuals that are born in, in, in the river, because you cannot have migrants from anywhere, because as I said, it's not connected. So, if you break that dynamic by flooding all nests and no one it's hatching so there's no new individuals into the population and there's no migrants coming from other sources eventually the population will crash right because you don't right, have yeah. any new individuals into the population so that's the situation currently in the senior river and because the dam is already there and we have we have we have had a lot of improvement in terms of, of, of getting them to regulate the production of energy that somehow matches the, that natural dynamic where like try not to release water during the dry season, but it's still really hard to get to that point. So the only alternative that we had was to literally just to pick up as many nests we could potentially find uh, along the river and take them into the incubator, hatch them um, uh, artificially, and then release back the hatchlings to compensate, compensate for that loss. So when we began that um, um, activity or that management strategy, one of the things that we needed to know was 
how do we incubate these eggs? You know, what's the temperature? Uh, the 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 uh, we call it the pivotal uh, temperature. So uh, you know, like with temperature dependent sex determination, um, um, depending on the temperature, you will produce females or you will produce males. And we didn't have that information specifically for the Sinu River. There was a, um, a, a study done for the Magdalena River population, uh, but the question back then was like, is it the same? I mean, is 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 the is the is the findings are the findings in the Magdalena River the same as the Sinu? So, so can we just like take that information and apply it to our population, or is it different? And because no one. I mean, back then there were no like um, um, published studies comparing different populations. We didn't know, but we 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 needed to be sure about the the temperature that uh, the the incubation temperature of our population, and that's why uh, we decided to replicate the Magdalena River study, but for the Sinu River population, and that allow us to answer our question, which was like, is it the same or not? And then compare both populations. Um, so at the end, what we found was that um, the, the pivotal temperature, which is the one that produces, um, so above that, uh, above that temperature, you produce males or females, was the same for both rivers, but the range, um, of, of, of temperatures where you could produce both sexes at the same time uh, was narrower for the Magdalena River and wider for the Sinu River. So you have like a, um, a wider range of temperatures where you could potentially produce both males and females. Um, and with that information, of course, we were able to um, um, incubate these um, nests uh, better. Um, so now we know that we are producing either males or females. Um, and for our management strategy that is related, as I said, with this story that I just told you about the hydroelectric dam in that, in that river. Right, that, that's really an interesting way. And uh, I think a lot of people would just take the data that existed for the Magdalena River and then just apply that. But it's interesting that you and your crew had the foresight to say, okay, we should probably analyze this separately because it's a different system, especially for a, a large species like that, that's isolated. And presumably for a long time that you'd have these differences. Um, what, why do you think that the, the transitional temperature range for the Sinu River was broader? What, what's sort of the reasoning behind that? Um, well, there's like, Several hypotheses around that. I mean, like uh, it could potentially be biologically different in terms of um, it's kind of adapt adapting to its own environment, and maybe the Magdalena River has like some sort of difference in terms of temperature, and that's why it just drifted into that direction and then the other one kind of drifted into another direction. Um, and then the other potentially issue um, is that, um, which is more statistical, it's not biological, um, is 
is that like in order to fit a regression model to actually find out that better, then you need a lot of, of um, observations. And in this specific type of analysis, an observation means uh, an incubator set at a particular temperature and replicates. And with that, you need to be sure that what you think is a male is a male and what you think is a female is a female. And as you might already know, there's no way to, to determine the sex on juveniles. They, they all look the same. So you cannot check them morphologically. Um, you have to check the gonads. And sometimes that, that, that's not even enough. And sometimes you need to dissect and do histological um, um, slides and actually check if you have like testes or ovaries, ovaries and um, and that means that setting up an experimental design with a lot of of, of observation points require a lot of nests and a lot of hatchlings that you have to um, dissect and that's not that nice so you kind of have to do it in a sense that you kind of have uh, enough information um, but as I said like it could potentially be just related with the fact that there's kind of missing uh, data throughout the regression that we set so that question also remains there but as I said like testing it um, is requires a lot of thing and and for what we were wondering which was should we use the magdalena river temperature for our specific needs or not then i that that question was answered now whatever it's like the follow-up of, of that kind of analysis and all the questions that you're asking me that requires uh, as I said, like another set of or another experimental design to actually um, answer that question or at least rule out that something biologically meaningful and not a statistical issue. Right. That, that makes sense that you you were more interested in seeing if there was a difference, not necessarily quantifying why that difference was there. Exactly. I've worked with some like GLMs before and that sort of thing. And you you, you kind of wonder it, it's easy to pick up differences, but it's harder to actually pinpoint why those differences are occurring. And like you said, to see if it's just a statistical artifact or what's, what's actually happening to cause that measurement as a whole. It's a whole separate section of, of research where it's like, uh, I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily know the struggle that aren't doing that work. So that that's interesting that you mentioned that. Exactly. And this specific one is kind of not um, my field of, of expertise. Like I'm, I'm not the person like studying temperature dependent sex determination. That was kind of a, a, a study that was feeling a, a, a question or a need uh, for management decisions. And that's why it was, I, I did not kind of follow up on that specific study because as i said it's not like my kind of line of research uh but it is interesting i mean yeah and it, you also accounted for heritability in there too which i, I thought mm -hmm. was fairly interesting because you 
once you've ruled out environment as causing those differences, you have to assume it's coming from something. And the, exactly. the most logical conclusion there is it's coming from the animal. So how, how do you account for that? And that's sort of more kind of your with the genetics aspect, right, is kind of your area. Yes. Um, so uh, you just explain it. So like the question was, is, is this just like um, a, a plastic trait? Is just like um, phenotypic trait, so to speak? Or does this have some sort of genetic component that's um that's which kind of says what i recently mentioned which is like oh so that that would mean that they are kind of adapting to their different environmental conditions in each of these two rivers um but um as i said that's another one i mean like the the, the analysis that we did so, so um somehow showed that there was a um heritability component and that has been shown in other systems and other turtles as well but because we had few data the um, kind of the um confident intervals of that estimate are wide they're not that narrow um what that tells you basically is that you need more information to kind of narrow those confident intervals and be sure that these have an important genetic component um, uh, or not. Um, so that's another question that kind of um, it's still to be answered for this specific um, 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 system. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess sort of to, to kind of close out or round out the Magdalena River turtle um, sort of section of things, it's it's really interesting work that you did with this. Uh, what is kind of the the conservation status of this species now? I know the, the Turtle Survival Alliance covers this pretty frequently in their, their annual reports and such, uh, but what it, you've been sort of I mean, you haven't followed up with that work specifically, but you've been involved with the work that's going on here. What, how do you? How is that species faring? Okay, so as I mentioned, there's two populations, Magdalena and Sinu. Uh, the main issue with that species is overharvesting. Um, so um, in Colombia, there's kind of a tradition that during um, Eastern or Holy Week, Lent, I don't know how you call it. Um, the, they have like the main traditional dish during um, the, the Holy Week is uh, our turtles. So over harvesting is huge, but is targeted to a specific time of the year. So pretty much no one hunts too many individuals outside that week. I mean, they do eat turtles, but it's not a big deal. But during that week, um, it's like a, a big deal. And unfortunately, the um, that um, Easter or Holy Week um, overlaps with the uh, reproductive season of, of the turtles. And what that means is that the um, harvest is biased towards the females because it's easier to trap them 
when they are outside of the water laying eggs. So although this has not been quantified, um, it's, it's likely to, to think that there are more females harvested than males. And on top of that, the females are also um, larger. So there's, I mean, like they're also targeted because they're, 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 they're larger. Um, so uh, over harvesting is like the main threat in both rivers. And then on top of that, in the, just in the Sinu River, we have the situation that I told you um, with the hydroelectric dam. There are several dams in the, in the Magdalena River as well. But it's an open system that has a lot of tributaries. So the impact of, of those dams are not as, as, as bad as in the Sinu River, where there's, there are no tributaries. And as I said, you have a population trapped between a wall and the Caribbean Sea. So if you have the situation where you have adults being removed at a a, a, a high rate and you have no new individuals coming um, to uh, uh, re, or rec no, you have no recruitment uh, you will lose the population I mean there's absolutely nothing you can do about that and with turtles you know that whatever um, effect you're currently having you won't see it like right away you will see it say in 20 or 30 years when where it is going to be really difficult to recover the situation. Um, and that's why um, the species was listed as critically endangered. Um, so we have been doing, uh, as I said, uh, with uh, WCS Colombia for many years, uh, conservation actions specifically to compensate the, um, the problem with the hydroelectric dam in the Sinu River. Um, and um, we also have been doing population monitoring. Um, so we are kind of checking every day um, if, if the trends are improving or not. But the problem is that it's not easy. I mean, what I just mentioned, like population crashes, you cannot pick them up right away. It takes time to actually see the crash. Um, so whatever we're seeing here does not necessarily mean that um, that um, that the populations are improving or not. Uh, but with so, so up to that point, we thought that the population was um, in bad shape. There was then uh, um, a study done by Dr. Vivian Pais. Um, she um, was able to establish um, uh, growth rates uh, for the Magdalena River. And what she showed in that study uh, was that the population was actually declining um, and declining at a fast rate. That's more or less one of the conclusions of, of, of her study. Um, but we recently published a conservation genomics study on that species and that allow us to see other things. Um, we estimated the effective population size of, um, of, of both populations, the Sinu and the Magdalena River. 
And the effective population size is, is kind of um, um, a difficult concept to explain, but I always give kind of the same example to people just to, um, to give you an idea of what it is. Um, so one thing is the census size, which is the number of individuals that you can actually count. But it's not the same to have a population of 1,000 individuals than to have a population of 1,000 siblings. You still have 1,000. If you count them, there are 1,000, but they're siblings, meaning that they are so related that the equivalent is kind of the equivalent to have like two individuals, not 1,000, because they are all related. So the effective population size kind of accounts for those biases. So, so if they're too related, if the um, genetic diversity is too low, if there's reproduction biased, meaning you have 1,000 individuals, but there's just two females reproducing and the other ones are not reproducing. Right, um, right. So that means that in the next generation, you will have a lot of relatives. So if the effective population size kind of compensate all those biases and give you a number that, of course, is lower than the census. So if you can have a, a census of 1,000, your effective population size will be always lower because it's kind of controlling for all the things that I'm just mentioned. I just mentioned, um, and the kind of the the thresholds um, established to know if the effective population sizes are good or not um, is a magical number that's called um, the 5500 rule. So, and what the 5500 rule says is that if you have an effective population size um, of, of below 50, that's kind of a warning sign that you're population is kind uh, of doing bad, you know, it's kind of getting into, into like passing to extinction. And the 500 is that you need at least an effective population of size of 500 to maintain genetic diversity over time. So what you would like to see in a, in a healthy population is a uh, values above 500 and you don't want val values below 50. So that's kind of two kind of warning signals that you have. When we did this analysis with uh, the Magdalena River population, so our surprising um, uh, result was that the effective population size was of, if I remember that correctly, something like 700. It was above the 500 threshold. Wow. Um, and there are several reviews that have compared the census to the effective in several uh, vertebrate taxa, and that they don't vary that much. And the rough estimate is that the effective population size, it's more or less 15 or 20% of the census size. As I said, it's always always smaller. So if we have like a census of um, 700, sorry, an effective population size of 700, that means that the population, it's of about 7,000 to 
thousand or something uh, each population. So if you compare those census sizes with the IUCN criteria, that gives you better hope for that species, uh, meaning that the population uh, is still, I mean, there are still several um, animals in the wild. But those sizes, what those sizes, sizes are not telling you is if there's a trend of decline or a trend in, in, in increase. So I'm just telling you, apparently there are more, more animals than we thought, although I don't know if those animals are disappearing really fast or, or if the population is actually increasing. Uh, but that gave us a little bit of hope, so to speak, in terms like, oh, maybe we are in the position where we could potentially change the trend and we are not in the position where we are like, this is really bad and we definitely need to take um, um, more actions, meaning like, like managing the population um, outside uh, its habitat in captivity and try to reproduce it in captivity to, um, and then rewild um, um, these populations. So that kind of gave us a little bit of hope. But overall, it's still an endemic. So that means like the range is extremely small species over harvested with hydroelectric dams issues um, and population sizes that are still uh, small. So it's, it's, it's still critical in my perspective. The it's interesting with the effective population size. It almost kind of gives you, I mean, it, you you would be able to uh, substantiate this, I guess. But I, from my perspective, it seems like that gives you, it gives you a better estimate of kind of what's going on with the the trend of the population or how robust it will be to certain environmental disturbances minus humans, because hu humans are sort of the one thing that genetic sort of things that make species more robust to disturbances, humans can just completely obliterate that by just wiping something out and taking it out faster than there can be any kind of anything that intervenes to save the population genetically or kind of keeps it from declining to a certain point. I, I don't know if that's making sense, but it's it's to the effect that that, that gives you better data on how the population is doing minus the impact that humans can have on the turtles themselves through consumption and yes i mean that's right because as i said you could have the false perspective that your population is doing well because you count the individuals and the count is high but as i said if they're all related then your population is not going to recover because it's really hard to recover when you only have seedlings or right. or highly related animals Whereas if you have random animals, um, then it's, fa it's, 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 it's easier to recover a population where, where you are at that state. And you will never see that if you don't uh, do genetics on that population. So you, you, you could potentially have the false idea that you have a large population when you actually don't. Right, right. That's yeah, that's interesting. And I think in that paper, you also kind of bring into perspective the larger question of older reviews that are based on kind of 
limited data and maybe some outdated methodologies should be updated for conservation purposes. And that, that seems like a lot of times, I mean, Penn and I talk about this kind of thing a lot. We're interested in this um, with larger scale where you're trying to look for differences in taxonomy between species. A lot of the stuff that's based on just fragments of genetic data seems like it's with genomic data available now, it seems like it's kind of pointless. But when you think about population genetics, there's even some level of and, and the, the types of analysis you're doing are different in those two different realms. But for population genetics, there's also a need to go back and revise things or what what kind of things does do we have now, I guess, that we didn't have in the past that we can analyze with? A lot. And that's kind of of, of the question that we addressed specifically in that study that you just mentioned. Um, technology has moved so fast <laughs> that um, over over the course of just a decade, um, you don't know if what if the information that you had is kind of accurate or not. So with that analysis, again, it, it, it like the whole idea was based on on our concerns about um, should we redo the population genetics of the Magdalena River turtle or not. And the question was because that's one of the very few species lucky enough to have a lot of genetic studies. So there was one with mitochondrial DNA, then there was a follow-up um, with another one with allozymes, then there was a follow-up with another one with microsatellites. So this is one of those weird situations where you have the same system analyzed with different technologies. Um, and the answer through time uh, with these different molecular markers was always the same, was the genetic diversity of that species is extremely low. And I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of highlighting that um, uh, word extremely because we can talk about what's extreme and what's not. Um, and the population structure was subtle, which was kind of weird since the, there's two isolated systems. So it was not surprising for me to see that there was no instruction within the Magdalena River or within the Senior River, but kind of seeing that level of gene flow across both rivers is kind of weird because, as I said, they are isolated. Um, so when, when I started to do all these conservation genomic things, um, so we said, should we just redo the Magdalena River population or, or not? I mean, it has three, four different studies and it costs a lot of money. Um, should we just spend that money in a new species, sure. you know, in a one that we have never like assessed from a genetics perspective, or should we just redo that? And then we thought like maybe many people face the situation, you know, like I have this amount of money and I have to make a decision whether to invest this money in a species that we don't know anything about it or one that is of conservation concern, but has been studied many times, but with 
other type of technology. And we said, well, this is kind of the best, um, a really good um, system to test our hypothesis. I mean, if we right. upgrade all those studies with the current technology, are we going to see something different that maybe they missed or not? Um, so we kind of compare the different uh, results with the different molecular markers uh, with genomics and kind of explain where we find differences and where we corroborate the, uh, the results that they got. So um, most of the times we, or most of, or most, most of the questions, we were like kind of corroborating things that they were able to observe. But so say like, for instance, they said genetic diversity is low. Okay, but how low? <laughs> like low, like we definitely need to be concerned about species or is kind of low, like endangered, endemic um, species level. Um, is the structure really uh, that subtle or, or is it just that we didn't have the statistical power to actually see it, uh, like a population structure in these in these species? Um, our gene, um, our migration across both rivers that high, or again, it's just a matter of we don't have enough statistical power to actually do a more um, or a less biased estimate of the amount of migra migrants moving across both both rivers. So with genomics, we we kind of um, like reduced the uncertainty of many of the estimates that were done previously for that species. Um, so for instance, one of, 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 of the things that we found was that migration across both, both rivers was not that huge. I mean, actually the, the, the confidence uh, intervals of that estimate overlap with zero, meaning like you could have one migrant or none. Uh, the population structure was straightforward. So you had one river was one thing and then the other river was was another thing as expected. Um, we also compared the genetic uh, diversity um, levels with other endangered species to see if they were like really off or not. Um, and we found that the, that where it was low, of course, uh, but kind of where we were expecting expecting it to be, given that it's uh, um, that that it has a small range and that it is um, endangered. Um, and we did this estimate that I just mentioned of the effective population size, which was not done was was not done done before. We also tested. Um, different hypotheses of population um, um, bottlenecks or or expansions to see if we were like kind of having a, a population um, increase or decrease. Uh, in that in that specific case, for instance, we corroborated past uh, uh, results. Like they all said that the population was declining. We we corroborated that information, but we put a specific hypothesis of, of, of 
recent decline. So most of the times with, with um, past technology, you were able to test a bottleneck, but within a really wide uh, time frame. Most of the times, like before humans. Um, right. And when, when you work with conservation, what you would like to know is during human <laughs> um, 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 time, are we seeing a, a, a bottleneck or not? I mean, I for for conservation, it doesn't matter if you had a bottleneck in the place to see. You know, what, like I really, I, what I need to know if, if we are currently having a bottleneck or not. Um, so we find or we we found several um, different things, and then we were able to corroborate other things. But as I said, with more certainty. So that's another thing. We started this conversation talking about, you know, like, why do you think this is happening? And I said, this could potentially be something biologically meaningful, or this could be just statistical, and a statistical issue because of the amount of data that we had back then. So one of the things that's good about genomics is that you can corroborate information with more certainty. So that gives you a better idea or better conservation decisions. And then we kind of said, okay, so if you specifically have that situation where you have to make a decision, should I invest money in a new species or should I just redo this one that's all already done? And of course, well, you have to bear in mind several things. So what's the investment? Because if, if the investment is not that big, then it doesn't matter. I mean, you're not, I mean, you will get a lot of information and you're not investing that money, but if the investment is large, then that can completely shift your decision. Uh, you also uh, have to uh, understand exactly what you're getting out of that investment, right? Because if I tell you, okay, this is the amount of money that you're investing, and you will only getting this little thing. Yeah, well, no. But if you're investing this amount of money and then you're getting all these new things, then that will potentially change your mind. Um, so we kind of got all those information. So how much does it cost? What things you can get potentially new? Uh, what things you won't get? Um, and then kind of put all that information together to say, well, maybe if you are in this specific situation, you can get a lot more new information. But if you're in this specific situation, you might not get more for, from what you already have. So maybe the investment is not going to be that good. So we just kind of partitioned this, 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 this in, in, a, in, a, in a decision tree uh, where depending where you are, you could potentially get more or not. And that's kind of the second part of, of that paper. Um, so that was more aimed to practitioners having to decide whether or not going down the road of redoing a genetic analysis or not. So yeah, more of a, a cost benefit analysis for exactly. conservation. It's a, that's, it's mm -hmm. a, thing to do and it's surprising in a lot of cases it isn't done more often but 
the limitations of the technology in the past seem to have gotten the way, but in the future, hopefully that will happen more. Um, maybe we can sort of switch directions. I, I don't think we can stop without talking about the um, doll's toad-headed turtle. And that that's a lot of work you've done with that species. Yeah. And that, that's a fascinating one. Uh, but maybe you could just tell us a bit more about uh, what you've done with those and your major findings and takeaways from those projects. Yes. Um, yeah, that's another kind of cool system. So um, it, it back back in the day again, um, it was considered an endangered species just because of range size. It was only known from a single locality in western Colombia, northwestern Colombia, and because of the size of the range, it was immediately listed as. Um, as uh, critically endangered. So it was kind of that microendemism situations. I think it was kind of in 2013 or so uh, where um, Dr. Herman uh, Forero and collaborators found a new population in the east of Colombia and that stretched the range by I don't know how, but it, it doubles it. And just because of that increase in range, the species was downlisted from critically endangered to endangered. Uh, and again, that makes you feel like, oh, okay, it's better. I mean, the range is, 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 is um, it's wider. So that means that the species is not as uh, endangered, endangered as we thought it was. But it was when we started to do kind of mark recapture studies, and I was kind of following those mark recapture studies uh, with genetic analysis that we found out a completely different situation. Uh, that species originally was a, a forest species. Um, it was um, specifically inhabiting, inhabiting the tropical dry forest in Colombia. And the tropical dry forest is by far the most endangered ecosystem in Colombia. It's, I mean, like the estimates are something like only 9% uh, remains of, 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 of the forest. And from that 9%, 4% is extremely fragmented. So it's a really bad situation in terms of, of, of that, uh, for that ecosystem specifically. And of course, the species began to fragmentate with the forest. So you have a, a situation where you have um, individuals with absolutely no forest, individuals with patches of forest, and individuals with kind of a decent amount of forest. So you have like all the all, all, all possibilities. So when we run all the genetic analysis, uh, the first thing that we noticed is that the population was fragmented and that's uh, sometimes you think that's kind of an obvious result you know so if the forest is fragmented then the individuals living within the forest are also fragmented but if you think about i don't know a bird for instance you could have horrible like fragmented forest but if the birds are capable of kind of flying from one patch to another one, they will keep the populations um, um, together, even though the habitat is fragmented. 
So one thing does not necessarily mean the other thing. Like if turtles can just move across creeks, um, then they could potentially be keeping the populations together, even though the forest is completely fragmented. Uh, but what we found was the opposite. We found that the populations were really fragmented. And then on top of that, they are isolated, extremely isolated. There's absolutely no gene flow between these little patches. And the patches are very little, which is the other situation. And because the, the patches have very few individuals, the level of relatedness of those individuals is very high. And the level of inbreeding as well is extremely high. Um, so we currently have the situation where we literally have families of turtles located in different patches. They're absolute families. Uh, and as we were discussing previously, that means that the effective population sizes are very low. So even though we could potentially have, say, 100 individuals in each patch, the effective population size is below 50, that magical number that we were discussing, meaning the red flag, you know, like, no, 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 this is a really bad situation and, and, and we have to do something about it. Otherwise, the only possible outcome is extinction. But unfortunately, that was kind of before when the species was downlisted. So again, this is one of the situations when you think that you are in better shape and then you see things from a genetic perspective and you realize that you are not in better shape than what you think. Um, and because of that result is where we decided to implement genetic actions to, to compensate for that um, situation. So we did what's known as a genetic rescue uh, project. We are currently doing that project uh, again in collaboration with the Turtle Survival Alliance and Wildlife Conservation Society um, in Colombia. Uh, and what a re genetic rescue program uh, means is that you literally move individuals across the families because they cannot move naturally. So you literally picking individuals from one patch, putting them in another patch, and hoping that they will breed. Because <laughs> that's, an, that's another, another story, right? So what I can do is just move you, but I cannot guarantee that you are going to breed with the locals. Maybe the outcome of this project is that locals avoid the... the, the um, introduce ones and they will never mate mate sorry so in that in if that's the case then the project failed because what we want is for them to breed and maybe what that means is that you will have to move those individuals into captivity and kind of force them to breed somehow because that's what you want but there are several unknowns here so we are in the stage where we have moved individuals from one patch and we introduce them into another patch. They are 
kind of in enclosures. So uh, that's another thing. We, we, we were not sure about how the um, reintroduced animals will behave in this new environment. So we were concerned about losing them. So of course they have um, uh, radio telemetry um, equipment so we can find them if they move around and they are um, in a in a fenced pond currently until they kind of established into the new environment. And in that pond, we placed local individuals and introduced individuals. And, and we have an experimental design where we have um, local males uh, with introduced females and the other way around, uh, local females with introduced uh, males. Because we didn't know if the behavior was different between males and females. Maybe males just breed with everyone, you know, but maybe the females are the ones that are reluctant to breed with the locals. Um, so there are many unknowns, but we are trying to see if this works or not because we need to break the level of inbreeding that we are currently seeing in, in that species. And something that's kind of uh, important to mention uh, of those um, um, genetic rescue um, strategies is that you have to be careful if the species shows some sort of, of um, ad local adaptive traits. So you want to bring new genes into the population, right? So that's one of the things. I need new genes but I don't want genes that might break an adaptive trait in this local environment. So with that specific um, species, what we found was that, so remember that I told you that we have patches of families in open grasslands, no forests, and then we have families in um, um, uh, fragmented forests, and then we had families in decent amount of forest. What we found with our genomic analysis was that forest, forest populations were completely different from open grasslands populations. So somehow the species is kind of adapting, adapting to that human-made new environment of not having uh, forest. And you don't want to bring grassland genes into forest populations, and you don't want to bring forest genes into grasslands populations, because you are going to break that trend of becoming adapted to these new environments, even if the environments are artificial, like the grasslands. Uh, so because of that, potentially adaptive situation that we were facing, we had to make a design where we will bring in individuals that are genetically different, but adaptively the same. Um, so meaning grasslands with grasslands and forest with forest, but from um, populations that were very apart not only in, ter in terms of distance, but in terms of genetic um, um, distance. And so that that kind of gave us the idea of, of, of the design. So 
who is going to be the donor population and who's going to be the recipient population, depend according to adaptive traits and according to uh, genetic differences. And that's how we designed the whole plan. And then, and as I said, we are currently in the stage where we have already moved the individuals from the donor population and we have placed them into the recipient population. And we are kind of in the part where we are assessing the establishment of the new individuals into the recipient population so far. So that's more or less the summary of, of that one. <laughs> yeah, that that was uh, some cool work. I remember, I think, 2017 in Charleston, that was, I had heard you talk about that. That was the first one I'd gone to. I think I was like seventh grade, probably. <laughs> but yeah, that was cool yeah. stuff to hear about. And I, I, yeah, seeing all the follow-ups and everything with the conservation work mm -hmm. has been interesting. So when in the genetics there's kind of an interesting thing. So you ob observed at a sort of interpopulational level, high uh, interpopulational, pretty high heterozygosity, but then individuals level that it was a propensity of less than you would expect heterozygotes. Is that sort of a proper way to categorize that? No. Um Okay. So the genetic diversity of the species overall, it's low as you would expect from an endangered endemic species. So it's not high. And the heterozygosity or homozygosity is somehow related with inbreeding as well. So you're expecting like if you're highly inbred, you should not have high levels of um, heterozygote genes or, or right. um, um So basically the levels of inbreeding of each little batch of, 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 of or families of turtles uh, were very high. And that's what give us the, the, I mean, that's why we decided to take like extreme um, um, actions to, to, manage this specific um, situation. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking. Um, yeah, I think I sort of just kind of formulated in a weird way, but that, that essentially the idea that you could correlate the homozygotes with the idea that there were inbreeding. Is it because there's certain times when that's not, but you can kind of rule out other things that were causing that? What What's really hard to correlate is if your inbreeding levels are causing uh, what's known as inbreeding depression. And what inbreeding depression means is that um, you are facing a situation where inbreeding is having an impact on reproduction, growth, or any life history trait that's important for population growth. So it, either you are not able to reproduce or you have a disease that will kill you young or something like that. So that means that the, gen the, 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 the level of heterozygosity is 
is is is correlated with a life history trait that's important for the population to survive meaning that you will definitely have a population decline if you don't have that so it's very difficult to relate in breeding levels to those life history traits especially in turtles because what that means is that you have to prove statistically prove that inbred individuals are I don't know, maybe laying fewer eggs or laying more infertile eggs or not laying eggs compared to non-inbred turtles or that they are not reproducing, I don't know, uh, two times per year, but just one or that they are not surviving as many years as the non-inbred one. So when you think about what it takes to study turtles, right? So they reproduce not that often. Um, sometimes it's just impossible to find clutches, you know, because they are like in the middle of the forest litter and then you just cannot find them, which is the case of this of this specific uh, animal. Um, or do you have to wait 50 years to actually see if <laughs> a result, you know? Um, so it's very difficult with turtles to actually correlate inbreeding levels to inbreeding depression. Uh, There are many systems where you can see high levels of inbreeding and no inbreeding depression at all, but that's rare. So the most common outcome is that if you have inbreeding, that's a concern. Um, So if you want to take kind of a conservative approach, even though you don't have the data to show or to prove that your population is facing inbreeding depression, the conservative approach is to take actions uh, even though you don't have that information because it's likely, very likely, that you are having that specific situation and you cannot wait forever to have that amount of, of, of data to prove that you are um, experiencing um, inbreeding depression or that your population is in, um, um, experiencing inbreeding depression. Well, especially in turtles too. I mean, a long, everything sort of exactly. life history wise takes a long time. So it's like a long time. Exactly. Yeah. And by the time you get that information, then the population might be gone, you know? So as I said, like if you are a conservation practitioner, you just have to take decisions with the best available data that you have. You might right. find later that it wasn't the best decision, but but you have to make a decision, you know? And if the very few studies that you have available are showing you something, then okay, that's that's what I knew back then. And that's what I decided back then. This is what I know now. So I'm going to change some stuff. Maybe that's what you will know in the future. Maybe you will just change everything, you know, but but that's like the like a normal day in uh, for a conservation biologist. Make decisions right. with the best data that you have available. Right. And it's an exciting field, too, from the perspective of being in this moment in time with it, just all the technological advances and and such. Well, we we can start to sort of wrap up. I've got a few quick questions that we can just finish with. Like 
we focused a lot on the research side of things. And on the research side, there's also the uh, the practical side. And you've done a lot of field work, uh, which I think is there are a lot of people in conservation genetics that do, but some of them sort of are mostly in the lab. But as I understand it, you've done a lot of in the in C2 work. Um, maybe what were some more memorable experiences or, or stuff that stands out from field work that you've done or favorite place to work, that sort of thing? Um, well, I mean, as potentially any field biologist will tell you, there are many stories behind each trip, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> um, obviously like I, I, like I, the Magdalena river, uh, turtle is kind of, um, my baby, so to speak, um, and everything like along that species and what I've been doing with that species has, has, of course, a special uh, place in my heart. But as, as I, I think like moving away from that species and becoming more familiar with other species, um, kind of this whole world has opened for me. And um, you just said something that's kind of true. Like people oftentimes think that conservation genetics is being done um, mostly in a lab, which is which is true, but it doesn't make any sense if you don't understand exactly what's going on in the wild, you know, like say what we, we were just currently talking about, the Dalstone headed turtle. So I could have ended up with um, results like, okay, so I have like um, uh, fragmentation, but that makes absolutely no sense. And like, uh, if, if you don't see the environment, okay, there's no trees here, there are trees here, there's grass here, there's no grass here. So you, you also need that part to actually make sense of, of the results that, that you're getting uh, from, from the lab. So it's kind of important to kind of keep doing these in the field. And in terms of, I mean, sorry, I don't know, I have so many. Um, let me just... Think about one specifically. Um, yeah, it's always the case. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. got tons, but yeah, it's tough to pinpoint one or two. But yeah, I mean, anything. I guess it stands out. Uh, <laughs> the, the uh, I don't know. I think you've been sort of involved with the NAFTURG too and the Belize work. That yes. that sort of thing. I I was there. I think in the second wave, and just yeah, the amount of that was my most recent, my most recent trip, and just in nine days, the amount of stories you come out with can fill a book. So it's just <laughs> just going in through. terms of genetics, the same thing. I think that's the first time where I was kind of complaining of the amount of samples that I was taking and not I usually complain because I don't find animals and I don't have enough samples you know it's like looking and looking and looking for animals and just empty hands right so that's uh, that's my normal complaint where when I went to Belize they were just capturing and capturing and capturing so many individuals that I had like I don't know 15 ready to be bled and I was like I cannot bleed that fast <laughs> And people were like, oh, that's actually one of the things that it's, um, speaking of, of field things, um, these guys are really fast, you know, like they just captured animals, they measure them super fast, they take notes super fast, they process them like in two seconds and they release the animals. 
but finding the veins to bleed up turtle, oh, believe me, that takes a lot of time. And especially because each species is different, you know, so some species, I don't know why it's really difficult to bleed and then the other ones are really easy to bleed. So, and then you have, of course, it's, it's humid, it's raining, there are mosquitoes, they have to keep moving, they need to check a thousand traps and you are the one, you are the bottleneck, right? You are the one delaying everything because you're trying to bleed the turtle and, it, and it's not working and then you have to find another vein to bleed and then you have, I don't know, 10 people just staring at you with that face, you know, like, because just please do this faster and then you're more nervous and then you're not getting the vein again. So what I feel is that I'm always the one delaying the team, you know, <laughs> like, like they, they, they need to move along and it's me always like delaying everything and that's horrible for them. But, but I mean, like, they know they know the deal now, and I think that they have adjusted to um, to that. Yeah, that I mean, you're also getting the information that nobody else can, so it's sort of that. There's that part of it, but uh, I mean, yeah, that's yes. Um, especially like I, I remember this one time in Belize where they were like, um, so I was like, "What's that species?" And I, I was kind of bleeding one, and then what's that? And they they said like. I don't know. I mean, it looks like a white lip, but it also looks like a, a, a Tabasco maturel. I don't know. I mean, like phenotypically speaking. So they were like, you tell us. <laughs> and you just take blood of this individual and then you let us know <laughs> what it is. Because it looks funny. It doesn't look like, like a, a, a pure white lip. Um, so, so, yeah. There's, there's that as well. Like I, I can come back to them and tell them, oh no, listen, what you thought it was species A is actually a hybrid between species A and, B, and species B or something like that. Yeah, right. That's I've been in a lot of groups where there isn't a geneticist on hand and you find something and say, oh, we could just take blood from this <laughs> and figure it out. But yeah, it's uh, even a few weeks ago, we were moving snapping turtles at a pond where they were overstocked and there were certain ones in there that had kind of characteristics of a bunch of different types and it's just oh wish we had someone to take samples of things there's always that but yeah when there's actually a geneticist on hand it's sort of a different <laughs> you've got that added pressure to it but that's and that's fun talking about um um snapping turtles like i've never seen one before uh the first one that i that i saw was in belize actually they are huge, right? And the tails are like super long and they're just huge. Um, so I was trying to, to, to draw blood from, from the first one that they capture. And of course I was like super subtle and then the needle was like um, shallow, you know? And then one of the guys said, like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm trying to find a vein. And he was like, it's a snapping turtle. Like, <laughs> like go deep. I mean, like the tails are huge. And he was right, right? Like, like the, the, I mean, it's a it's a thick tail, so the vein runs like in between, meaning that you have to go deep with the needle, or you will never see uh, 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 find the vein. But it was a completely new species for me, so it was kind of um, looking for it like superficially, and it was very deep. So, 
that's um, I, I I always remember that um, story as well from from the snap, um, snapping turtles, because um, that was a completely new species um, to me, and they're huge. Yeah, the the common snapping turtles down there are, are the uh, I guess the uh, the Central American snapping turtles. Central American, yeah. Yeah, those ones are interesting. These were we we were moving alligator snapping turtles, so these were uh, the biggest one we moved was 142 pounds. <laughs> so never, yeah, never seen that one. Yeah, right. no, yeah, and they're uh, yeah, they're they're cool to see, and they're if you know where to look, you can find them for sure. It's uh, it's a really interesting species. I, we were out trapping with uh, Dr. Travis Thomas, who does work at University of Florida, a few weeks ago, and right after that event where we moved them all from the pond, we went there to Florida and did that. And that, that was cool stuff. But I'm sure if you ever reached out to him or anything, if you're in the U S that he'd probably be down to show I you stuff. Or, yeah. Love to see them in the <laughs> yeah. <wild. laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not as involved with that, but I, yeah, I can push you in touch with people and I'm sure he just reach out to someone, Eric Muncher. He knows. Yeah. 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 He has <laughs> promised that several times and I will, um, collect those promises eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I've still never been out to find them with him. He's seen the one, I haven't seen the Western species, but I've seen the Apalachicole and the Suwannee species. So, uh, yeah, I have to get out with him. Uh, but yeah, all right. So we, we can sort of wrap things up here. Um, but we do do something at the end where I keep forgetting to tell people before this, but it's a, it's turtle trivia and we don't, we can do this however you want to do it. If you want to ask us a question or two questions about turtles, or we can ask you something or however you want to do it, or if you've got to go, we can just end it now. Uh, but I don't know if you want to do that, but we do it with everybody, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just throw <laughs> but it I mean, like I ask you a question, um, a turtle related question and then see whether you know the answer or not or yeah sure yeah just turtle trivia yeah that <laughs> the... <laughs> okay um but what um hmm. i normally mention it in my email when i invite people to the show but i keep forgetting i forgot in the past four so but yeah sorry to put you on the spot but just any sort of random <laughs> It's an easy way. Someone, one of our previous guests said it's a good way for us to demonstrate our useless turtle knowledge that can't be used anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's a really, a really good uh, way to put it. But um, so just give me like an example. Um, okay. No answer to that, but. <laughs> All right. You want to. OK, we'll give you a question. You got a question, Ken? Ken Ken's got to step in here. He's got a question. Uh Name one amided without cloacal bursae. <laughs> well, I know. Say what? Diamond, diamondback turpins. They, being in oh. brackish water, they, they're uh, unusual for amideids in that they actually don't have any uh, cloacal bursae. Did I know that? <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one, though. It's fairly obscure, but just, yeah, there's no boundaries. Any sort of turtle related questions work. Um, okay. So, but obviously I will just have to say something kind of South American because that's where I know yeah. the most. Go um, ahead. 
Oh, maybe like, can you name, um, say, at least what? Three or five tortoises that occur in South America? Okay, yeah. Uh, Ken, you, you got one of these. <laughs> I know. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, Chaco tortoise. Yeah, that's one. That's one. And then the sister species to that, Galapagos tortoises. Which are several. Which, yeah, which could be a bunch. I mean, uh, well, let's see. I, I might be able to name all the Galapagos tortoises, uh, contemporary ones at least. Oh, I, the Latin names, I guess I'll, I'll do that. Kelanoidus darwini, Kelanoidus piscina, Kelanoidus guntheri. Kelanoidus, oh, Becci, uh, Kelanoidus, Porteri, uh, Fastoy. All right, we, yeah, that, that works. And then uh, red-footed tortoises, yellow-footed tortoises. That's uh, it. Yeah, I think that's all of them, right? That's all. <laughs> I mean, all you right. have all the Galapagos and Chilenses and the yellow and the red-footed tortoises, and that's it. All right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good that's a good one though. Uh, yeah, all right, cool. Uh, all right, we can end it here. That was uh, thanks again for coming on. It was uh, a pleasure to talk with you and to hear more about your work um, and all the. No, cool thank stuff you for having me. It was really yeah, fun. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, and hopefully, are you going to TSA uh, the next meeting? I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Are you coming? Yeah, we, I think. I'll, I should be there. Uh, I'm not 100% sure yet, but Jack Thompson, who I uh, wish he could be on today, but is out doing surveys, he'll be there. I think he's going to talk. Um, and then uh, I don't know about Jason or Ken, but we'll see. But, uh, yeah, thank you again. Uh, it, will, it will be awesome if we could meet in person again after all these years. Yeah, yeah. I would. Well, I, I, were you at the last uh, meeting? Yes, I was. Okay, I, I I spoke last uh, in in August. I was there, but uh, I I guess we just didn't cross paths. But uh, yeah, we'll have to uh, talk at the next meeting for sure. Okay, like not. I mean, I I I don't recall seeing you, but like uh, it's been so long that. Um, so. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I yeah. Compared to twenty seventeen, I've. Yeah, bit. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of people there, you know, like, I don't know, like most of them. Um, no, that's not true. I know most of them. There are a few that I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely, it will be awesome to uh, meet you guys um, in Charleston again. Oh. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. And for everyone listening, uh, this has been episode 33. I might have said 32, but wow. yeah. Yeah, we're getting up there. All right. Thanks again. <laughs>